You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning. We'll turn to 2 Kings 19, beginning at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib that has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I have heard your prayer concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises you and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have heaped insults on the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choices of its pines. I have reached its remotest parts, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In days of old I planned it, now I have brought it to pass. That you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people, drained of power, are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you stay. And when you come and go and how you rage against me, because you rage against me and your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. This will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot any arrow here. 
He will not come before it with shield or build a siege rampart against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it. For my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons, Adramelech and Sharezer, cut him down with a sword, and they escaped to the land of Arad. And Ezra Hadon, his son, succeeded him as king. Love the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but last week was, for me, a really tough week. It all started on Tuesday with the news of that devastating earthquake that struck the impoverished nation of Haiti. And after that, no matter where I turned, the news of disaster was everywhere. It was on the radio nonstop. It was on all the front pages and the back pages of the newspapers. It was on everyone's lips. Yes, and perhaps most disturbing of all, it was on those television screens, etched on the tablets of our minds as a result are these images of a city and a country laid to waste, of collapsed buildings, of people trapped in rubble, of bodies filling the streets of the city and towns, of crowds of survivors crying, digging, praying, dazed. What a misery, what a calamity, what a disaster. And indeed, from a human perspective, things could not have been any worse. Here we have a country that has already been a basket case for years. Its history is full of slavery, insurrection, voodoo, dictatorship, lawlessness, hurricanes, corruption, and poverty. And now this. One wonders whether this earthquake may not be the last straw and signal the death of a nation. And meanwhile, the nations of the earth are scrambling. Aid is coming in from all directions. Rescue teams from Canada and elsewhere are descending or have descended on Haiti. The airport is clogged with planes. Ships, large and small, are sailing, but with nowhere to park. Help is on the way. And also your help and the proceeds from the collection that we hope to hold this afternoon will soon be on the way, too. But will it be enough? Will it really make a difference? Can this country be rebuilt? Can this nation be rescued and restored? Is there any real help out there 
for this ravaged land. Well, we believe there is, in spite of everything, there is help. There is human help, but even better, there is divine help. There is divine help in Haiti for all those who really turn to the Lord and call on his name. And now perhaps that sounds kind of trite and preachy. And you may even be inclined to say to yourself, of course, that's what a preacher would say. After all, that's what all preachers would say. Beloved, there's more. There's more than here simply a pious piece of pastoral advice, for in saying this, we preachers have history on our side. Specifically, we have the history of God's Old Testament people on our side. And even more specifically, we can refer to a certain psalm and a particular period in history to prove it. And indeed, beloved, let us open our Bibles once again this morning. We turn to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Well, after reading that, we can sum it up with the following words, and that's our theme for this morning. God is an ever-present help in trouble. And as we consider this psalm together this morning, we're going to see a situation of no help, great help, and always help. So God is an ever-present help in trouble. We'll consider a situation in which there is no help, great help, and always help. Well, beloved, it is the year 70 or 700 before Christ, and much of the known world is in a state of war again. Assyria has unleashed her armies, sending them east and west. And as these armies march, they strike fear and terror into the hearts of people everywhere. The Assyrian soldiers are known for their sadistic cruelty. Their chariots are known for their ability to chew up and chew to shreds vast armies. Their siege works are known to demolish even the most fortified of cities. 
The nations of the earth are trembling and immobilized with fear. Yes, and soon it will be the turn of the kingdom of Judah. Already the Assyrians have captured almost all of her cities. Only Jerusalem still remains free and standing, and soon she too will be a heap of rubble. And then Judah will be no more. She will go the way of Israel, the ten tribes. Rarely has she faced a greater threat. Rarely has her existence hung more precariously in the balance. And now you may wonder, of course, why it is that also Judah is in such dire straits. What has brought about this looming disaster that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19 and so forth? Well, for an answer, we need to go back a little in history. You know, some years earlier, Judah had been ruled by King Ahaz, and he had found himself on the horns of a real political dilemma. And the dilemma was this, whom shall I join with? Shall I ally myself with that superpower called Syria, or shall I ally myself with that superpower called Assyria? And in the end, he chooses for Assyria. He made Judah a vassal state of the great Assyrian Empire, and in return for his submission and his annual tribute, Judah came under the protective umbrella of Assyria. Now, from a purely strategic angle, this proved to be a very shrewd move. For in due time, that other superpower, Syria, was conquered, as was her ally Israel of the Ten Tribes. The ten tribes were defeated, exiled, and dispersed by Assyria. But nevertheless, you know, being a vassal state is both a costly as well as a humiliating experience. And hence, it's not unusual to see nations like Judah soon yearning again for their liberty and looking for an opportunity to spring free once more. Well, it doesn't take long, and such an opportunity presents itself. In the year 705 B.C., the Assyrian king, Sargon, was assassinated. And instantly revolts flared up throughout the entire Assyrian empire. And then Judah saw her chance. That now, by King Hezekiah, she threw off the yoke of Assyria, and she declared her independence again, Oh, what a glorious day when that happened. The people of Israel or the people of Judah could breathe the air of freedom once again. But alas, it soon proved to be short-lived. For in no time at all, the power struggle in Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, was over. A new king called Sennacherib sat on the throne. And very quickly he consolidated his power and And soon his armies went out again to deal with all the revolts in the realm. First they went east and they vanquished the king of Babylon and his allies. And then they went west and they reconquered the cities of Ashkelon, Joppa, Timnah, Ekron, Tyre, and Lachish. Yes, and next it was Judah's turn. And Rabshakeh, the Assyrian general, comes with thousands upon thousands of soldiers into the promised land. 
And at last he comes to Jerusalem and he surrounds it on every side and he issues an ultimatum. Surrender or die. He even taunts the king, King Hezekiah of Judah, and the people in their own tongue. But you know, he does more. He also mocks, mocks the God of Judah. Listen to what he says in 2 Kings 18, the verses 32 to 34. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land or land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Zephariah, Hena and Iva? Why, a little later, even King Sennacherib himself comes and, and sends a mocking letter to Hezekiah. Do not let the gods you depend on deceive you. Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers deliver them? Clearly then, Sennacherib has no respect for the Lord God of Israel. He considers him to be merely another little local limited deity. He's but a puny god compared to the great and huge gods of the Assyrians. He cannot save them. He cannot deliver them. Hezekiah might as well throw in the towel. Judah is doomed. Jerusalem is fighting a losing battle. There is no help. And there is no hope. All is lost. Now when you think of it, does that not in some ways mirror the Haitian situation? There may be no King Sennacherib or General Rabshakeh saying it, but there are enough other voices saying it. Haiti is beyond help and beyond hope. It's time to give in, give up, and move out. No one can do anything about this devastating situation. But we ask this morning, is that true? Of course, Haiti is not Judah, and the president of Haiti is not the king of Judah. But is there no help, no hope for this people? You know, in his day, King Hezekiah, as well as the remnant of his people, refused to accept that. Stubbornly, doggedly, they turned their face to the Lord in repentance and faith. They called on him for help and deliverance. They firmly believed that he was able to do much more than any local deity. That their God is the God who is enthroned between the cherubim. That their God is the God who rules over all the kingdoms of the earth. Their God is God alone. And you know, He is. He really and truly is. For at the appointed time, the Lord Himself went out and smashed the mighty Assyrian army. 
2 Kings 19.35 tells us the story. It's very simple. The angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. In a single night, without any help from Hezekiah and his army, the Lord showed Sennacherib and the nations who was God. He utterly defeated him. He wiped him out. And dazed and demoralized, Sennacherib was forced to go back to Nineveh. And once there, he was soon assassinated by his sons. And so Sennacherib and all of Assyria was humbled by the God of Judah, was exalted. And as for Jerusalem, she was delivered, freed, saved, and redeemed. And now, beloved, in thankfulness, the sons of Korah get to work. And they compose a, a special psalm, a psalm of praise to the Lord. It's Psalm 46. It's our text. And you'll see that it adores the Lord our God and acknowledges him alone as the perfect helper and defender of his people. Oh, and how true that is, how true that was then, but how true that is still today. Haven't we been reminded of that rather recently? Is Christmas, for example, not a great reminder that God does care for this planet? Are Good Friday and Easter not splendid reminders that the God, our God, helps his people more and better than anyone else can? He rescues his people out of the hands of calamities and human oppressors also rescues them out of the hands of their own sins and the devil's devices. When we are as good as down and out, we have this God to call on for help. It's to him that our faces and all Haitian faces as well can turn. It's to him that prayers and petitions need to be addressed. He alone possesses the power and the willingness to either deliver from the awful situations of life or to give us the strength that we need to cope, to go on, to rebuild and ultimately to prevail. It's your God alone deserves the praise. That's what he receives in Psalm 46. First stanza opens with the reassuring words, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Amen. No matter what happens to us, God's people always have a safe place, a strong place, a secure place. They have God himself as their shelter and refuge. Yes, and because because they have him, they can be confident. 
Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. It seems as if the psalmist is saying that flood, hurricane, and earthquake will not frighten them. And of course, there's truth in that, great truth. But you also need to understand there's something else going on here, and that is this talk about the earth giving way, about mountains falling and waters roaring is a poetic description of a huge approaching army. Compare it to the words of Isaiah 8. Therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria, with all his pomp. It will overflow all of its channels, run over all of its banks, sweep on into Judah. You see, the enemy is compared to a flood. The enemy is compared to an earthquake. The enemy is compared to all kinds of devastation. And the same in Isaiah 17, oh, the raging of many nations, they rage like the raging sea. You see, what the sons of Korah are doing are comparing Assyrian forces to natural forces, as well as natural elements that contain great powers of destruction. But yet, beloved, no matter how these words are applied, one thing is obvious. And that is that the people who commit their lives to the Lord need not fear. In their God, they always have a rich source of help and protection. They're not alone in the universe, battling great and insurmountable and unknown forces. They're not mere pawns being moved by impersonal powers. They're not without hope and help. Well, they have God as their shelter. They can always run to Him, hide in Him, call on Him. When has He ever turned a blind eye or a deaf ear to them or to us? When has he ever left them or us to fend for ourselves? In the end, he always helps those who call on his name. And something else as well, he always feeds, nourishes, and restores them. Look at the second stanza of this psalm. You find it in the verses 4 to 6. And it too is very poetic language. In verse 4 it says, A river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the Most High dwells. And you may wonder what that means. And some say it's an obvious reference to the tunnel that King Hezekiah had built during the Assyrian siege or before to bring water from the pool of Gihon into the inner city. And those waters in turn and in time make the people glad, especially during the days of siege warfare. And now there may be a connection there, but you know there is an even more profound thought embedded in all of this. For instead of water being brought into the city, 
these verses seem even better to indicate that water is flowing out of the city. In poetic language, the sons of Korah are speaking about the temple and the blessings that flow out of the temple. It's in the temple, after all, that one finds the altars and the offerings and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the very dwelling of God himself upon the earth. And it's from there that help comes. It's from there that the streams of water flow. The streams that in due time make glad the city of God. And it's from there that help comes. And from there that God lifts his voice. Notice what King Hezekiah does when he receives the blasphemous letter, the mocking letter from King Sennacherib. He takes it, not into the palace, he takes it into the temple. And he spreads it out before the Lord to see and to read. And the result, help, comes from the sanctuary. Psalm 46 speaks and says that God helps Judah at break of day. 2 Kings 19.35 says, when the people got up the next morning, that is at break of day, there were all the dead bodies of the Assyrians. It's all a reminder to the people of God then and to us today that when nations like Assyria are in uproars and kingdoms fall, we must not panic. And also when tsunamis come and earthquakes happen, we must not panic. All God has to do is lift his voice and nothing and no one can stand before him. Then everything melts. Isaiah says in this connection, the voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria. With his scepter he will strike them down. At the very beginning God spoke and creation happened. At other times, God speaks and kingdoms fall. Truly, if you think of it all, what a God we have. How precious it is to know that the Lord God Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And notice, he's the Lord Almighty. Literally, he is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord who is the commander of the heavenly armies. Rabshakeh and Sennacherib think they have a great army. But they don't have anything compared to what the Lord has at his disposal. And you know, in Jerusalem there had been those who tried to encourage the people by saying, Babylon is with us. Syria is with us, Egypt is with us, yet vain is the help of man and mighty is the help of Yahweh of the hosts. That's a great lesson to be learned here. 
The people of Judah are saved only because they, led by their king, confessed that their God is Emmanuel. God with us. They put their trust in the God of the covenant. They run to him for guidance and protection. Yes, and he answers them with streams of blessing from his holy city. And that, beloved, is still the way it is today. We can say to one another and we can say to the Haitian people in their misery, look to God, expect what you need from him, and he will supply it. I've never met a believer yet who's said to me, I turned to God with all my heart. And I came away disappointed and empty-handed. But I've met lots of believers who said, I turned to God in my misery. And he answered me. And he answered me in ways that I would never have dreamed of or ever imagined. But he answered me, I know that help comes from the sanctuary. It comes from the heavenly sanctuary where today Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so we need to realize that. Perhaps today more than ever before. Christ seated on the throne. Christ is working. Christ is leading. And he's moving forward. Actually, this morning, we should have been looking at the letter to the church at Thyatira. As a matter of fact, we should have been looking at the book of Revelation. But if you look at the entirety of the book of Revelation, what is it about? It's about the Lamb who has the scroll of history in his hands. The Lamb who has the last word. Indeed, he is as much in control today as his father was in control in the days of this song. Look, for example, finally at the third stanza of Psalm 46. And what does it, what does it teach us? What does it teach us more than anything else? Well, it teaches us that we should realize there is more to history than what we see and what we feel and what we experience. Often, when there are desolations and when wars and calamities break out, we treat them superficially or naturally or as purely man-made occurrences. But yet the sons of Korah remind us in this last part of the psalm that everything is in one way or another part of the works of the Lord. And sometimes he unleashes devastations and sometimes he makes the wars to cease. And he beats the swords and the plowshares and the spears and the pruning hooks. In short, God is always involved. In one way or another. And the citizens of Judah, they forgot that. 
They needed a prophet like Isaiah to remind them that actually Assyria was the rod of God's anger. Yes, and we forget that too and we horizontalize everything. We see parts of Africa in turmoil and we say to ourselves, oh, it's just politics as usual or corruption as normal. We, we see nations slipping into gross immorality and we say, well, that's the current trend in these days. And we see Haiti brought to its knees by a terrible earthquake and we say, oh, that's really bad luck. Should live somewhere else. When it comes to all these developments and more, we ascribe so much of it to man, we ascribe so much of it to unknown causes. But what we often fail to see is the hand of God. And that's a hand that brings disaster and a hand that brings peace. And so, beloved, as, as things happen around us, even as awful things happen to us and around us, we need to see what man is doing, but even more importantly, we need to ask ourselves, what is God doing? Indeed, we need to realize that even now the, the Son of God is moving forward, laying the foundation for the day of His great return. For one day He will rule the nations in a most visible fashion. And everyone will know it, and everyone will see it, and everyone will declare him to be what he really is, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. I realize that. And believe it. And in the meantime, live your lives in great confidence and quiet trust. As the sons of Korah put it, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. But of course, there are still questions, aren't there? Unresolved questions. There will be days like today when you won't be able to fit the pieces of the puzzle together. There will be days when you see God's judgment at work. There will be days when you see God exercise His patience and restraint. And through it all, don't argue with God. When you see all these things that you can't figure out, that you can't square, that you can't reconcile, remind yourself, we see but dimly. We understand but little. We are but creatures of clay. But He is the Creator God. We don't have all the answers. All we have are questions. Why does He allow this or that? Why wars? Why disasters? Why genocide? Why Haiti? 
Beloved, in the midst of all of those questions, acknowledge that your God is so much greater than you are. Acknowledge his wisdom and his reign. Leave it to him to tie all the loose ends together and to put all the pieces in the puzzle together as well. You can't see the entirety of what he's doing today. But one day, one day we're going to see it. And when on that great day we finally see everything that God has been doing and how he's worked everything to a glorious climax, wow, it will floor us. It will take our breath away. It'll be beyond our wildest dreams. And in the meantime, take a page out of Isaiah's book in quietness and trust is my strength. So, beloved, do not despair. Do not despair as you consider the nations. Do not despair as you consider the future of Haiti. Rather, continue to pray for her to help her, to remind her, as well as yourself, to place your hope and trust in the God who is ever with us, in the Christ who reigns today, in the God of Jacob, who remains the fortress of his covenant people forever. Because the Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.